0: Welcome to this episode of Gone Medieval, I'm Matt Lewis. Middle Ages is a tricky term. It really only applies to a Western European view of history and it was created at the beginning of the early modern period in England to categorise what had gone before. For most of the world, there was no middle, at least not when we think of it taking place. Historian Peter Frankopan, the author of Silk Roads, Is the perfect person to explain to us why the medieval period is so much bigger than Western Europe, where the centre of global geography sat then and why our doorstep is important but far from the whole story. Thank you very much for joining us today Peter. Great,
1: nice to be with you.
0: So I guess what we're trying to look at here is how did we get this idea of the world being so Eurocentric during the medieval period? So what would you call the centre of a medieval world? I think if we look at some old maps, they tend to put Jerusalem as literally the centre of the world. But we also have this idea of it leaning much, much further west. So where would you place the centre of the medieval world?
1: I think you place the centre of the world wherever you're standing. I mean, you know, I can show you maps from Turkic and Turkish texts, which places it in cities in Central Asia that people literally never heard of, like Balasagun. So generally, we are, each of us, the centre of our own worlds. You know, Jerusalem has a particular importance resonance for the people of the Abrahamic faith, for Christians, Jews, and Muslims. And so the sort of religious and spiritual idea that there is a kind of central focal point, obviously, is one thing. But, you know, I think we shouldn't get carried away even with those worlds. You know, for all of us, our own conceptualizations about what's important starts with our own backyard. And we can have lots of ideas about you know, how New York, isn't that great, or Shanghai or Cape Town or big cities in the world without ever having visited them. But those are all sort of, I wouldn't necessarily say surreal, but you know, they're not real experiences. So I think we start with where people are living. And, you know, in the worlds that I work on and the connections across that link Asia, Europe, and North Africa, through the Indian Ocean world, when one thinks about exchange, people are very unbothered about the idea of there being a centre in the first place. I mean, it's quite a Eurocentric question, I guess, in the first place about why do we need to have a centre? Why do we need to have a kind of fixed point? Why do we need to have a sort of story that explains everything rather than rolling set of narratives that one finds in other parts of the world? I guess it's a
0: part of human nature to think of your own doorstep as the most important place in the world.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I think you start with what you know, you start with who's in front of you, your next door neighbours and you know evidently even the word civilization we specifically means in its strict meaning the study of cities and where civilization starts where you have lots of people living together and i guess what happens when you find cities is that they bring people, or they typically bring people from near and far to buy and sell goods. And so level of the velocities of exchange are much higher than they would be living in the countryside. So you might think that you're starting out with your own backyard, but if you're living in a city and it's and it's a big city with lots of people, then it's the fact that you can hear different languages, different lifestyles, you can have different foods, different kinds of experiences. Those kinds of things tend to mean that where you have the highest and most vibrant levels of exchange are in cities that have large population sizes. And in the Middle Ages that we're talking about, which is a very European concept anyway, the fact of the matter is most of the big cities in the world were not in Europe. I mean, the only real exception to that is the city of Constantinople, of a population of maybe quarter of a million, million maybe even half a million. But compare that to, to cities like Baghdad or Kaifang or Merv, with a population certainly into the hundreds of thousands, in Chang'an, Xi'an, population of, uh, according to some sources, of well over a million. And so that that just means that the interactions that people have, the knowledge exchange, as well as the commercial exchanges, are significantly enhanced. And that's not what the European Middle Ages looks like, where we find small cities, you know, Paris and London, maybe 20,000 people. It means that the experiences of what it means to be civilised, let alone urbanised or whatever, are, are just much, much lower. And of course, the other thing which we forget about Europe, because our geographies are all scrambled by the age of European empires, is that you know Paris is very well located if you're in the UK and you want a weekend away. It's not very well located if you are trying to bring fragrances and spices and aromatics from South Asia, or you're trying to bring silks and textiles from, from China or Central Asia. The European landmass in Northern Europe is miles away from anywhere. So you don't tend to get visitors coming from different places. You don't tend to get people speaking different languages and therefore not so many bringing different ideas. And of course, as all of us know, the one big thing about a metropolis is that you have lots and lots of different influences. And it would stand to me to reason that the more kinds of impulses, the more kinds of people you have uh, coming from near and far, the greater the richness of that experience would be. That's why cities like London and New York are very different today, even to cities like Chongqing and Shanghai, which I know all of your listeners will know. Chongqing has an urban population of around about 30 million people, but very, very few of them are not from mainland China. And so that mix of people who are traveling and bringing their wares, trying to make their fortunes and to buy and sell things and to learn, those look different. So it's, it's no surprise, I suppose, that the big intellectual powerhouses in the period between about 500 and 1500. You know, they're really not in Europe. I mean, Oxford and Cambridge get going around about 12-1300. Uh, Bologna is an important uh, cultural centre. Rome, of course, likewise, Paris has an important university. But you know, the really the best scholars in the world are in places like Bukhara and Isfahan and Kaifang, Xi'an, Damascus, Baghdad, and so on, because population sizes breed funding, patronage, political clout, And above all, they attract other people who are clever. And you need lots of people who are clever to bounce ideas off. So so the experience looks very different in Europe to what it looks like in, in North Africa, for example, or in East Africa and Ethiopia, too, is an important part of that knowledge exchange with the Indian Ocean. And then, of course, Asia and its different clusters of network worlds as well. So, you know, Europe just has a very different and quite deflated position. It's not good or bad. It's just what it is.
0: And do you think that cauldron in which we have all of these high centres of population, lots of travel and and movement, ideas and goods moving around, does that play into why so many of the world's major religions spring from this same region? So many ideas that we still have today about being Caucasian springs from this very region. Is that the the reason all of this happens in that place?
1: I don't know. I, I don't think that there's a sort of rhyme or reason to it. I don't think that if populations were the only... And large population is the only sort of key cause, then, then you expect lots of other things to flow from it too. I, I think that religion is much more complicated than saying stick a lot of people in a room together or a lot of people in a city together and they'll come up with different ideas about cosmologies. The reason why the major global religions have managed to spread and survive was because they were effective and they gave good answers to complex questions and they gave compelling answers to complex questions. Obviously, it helps if that information and knowledge and ideas can be disseminated and spread. But that doesn't just involve people, that involves charismatic individuals, it involves high-level scholarship, uh, it involves thought, and it it involves an ability to adapt as well. So I don't think that there's a, a particular answer to that one. I mean, it seems to me quite obvious that Christianity and Judaism that are born in the Middle East, as it's now called, the Near East, or in Palestine and Israel, Islam that's born in Mecca and Medina in the Hejaz in in what's now Saudi Arabia, but the heartlands of, of the Islamic world are in Damascus and Samarra and in Baghdad eventually. The blending of how these global regions interact with each other, exchange with each other and compete is obviously a, a quite an important part of their success. So I think it's not just so simple as to say they spring from where you have populations, but interaction is a very important way of, of making ideas better and sharper. And, um, you know, in Europe, there are plenty of other religions that Christianity has to compete with when it starts to spread, not least all the ancient Roman religions, uh, which are multiple. And, you know, to displace those, Christianity needs to give better and sharper and more compelling answers. Otherwise, it doesn't take off.
0: And do you buy into at all the idea of the Dark Ages in Europe being a period in which that continent specifically is kind of culturally and scientifically and in other ways in the dark compared to other parts of the world. I mean, I think there's been a bit of a a pushback against that, but were we in the dark in Europe compared to
1: other places in the world? Well, you know, I think historians have got to be careful about this one. I mean, I've got lots, lots of friends of mine and colleagues who are very keen to sort of uh, to downplay ideas of the Dark Ages and to sort of bring it back into the light and so on. And, you know, I'm perfectly happy to let everybody cut the cloth the way that they want, and, and a lot depends on how well you do it. I mean, for me, I suppose that there are sort of some fundamentals, which is, you know, let's look at literacy levels. You know, can more people read after the fall of the Roman Empire than could read beforehand? And, and in any event, is that a particularly useful Uh, metric. I mean, so what does that even prove in the first place? I I think what's obvious is that after the Western Roman provinces fall around about the 400s onwards, that you see a a major decline of civic infrastructure, of political unity, of literacy levels, and high levels of localised violence. And those seem to be quite good indicators of the fact that institutional protection and overlay has disappeared for all sorts of different reasons. And presupposes, of course, that the institutional overlays are good. I mean, we sort of all exist in a world where we believe that states are good in their own right. But it doesn't stand to reason to me at all that somebody living in an agricultural settlement in the year 400 or the year 800 in what's now France, for example, whether they would be able to ask them to compare and contrast, it's not clear to me at all that they're better or worse off with Roman rule or Carolingian rule or no rule at all. So I think a lot depends on on how one wants to see it. But in in my cosmologies, in terms of the fundamentals, there's no question that the collapse of the Roman Empire brings about complete dip in living standards in Western Europe. There's almost no building in stone. Uh, Literacy levels, as I said, plummet. Mortality rates and life expectancies go down. Levels of exchange are massively reduced. And even things like smelting of metals collapses. Is that necessarily bad? Does that mean there's darkness? Those are words that other scholars will have to work out for themselves. I think what's more interesting from my perspective is that the side of Europe that is much more effervescent in this sort of so-called dark period is the eastern side of Europe. And the eastern side of Europe is still left out of all stories and all narrative histories of Europe. You know, there's no space at all for what's happening in Hungary, which is Hungary is is, is probably the, certainly one of, if not the most important cultural centre in Europe in around about the year 1000. Uh, the Byzantine Empire, an uh, area I work on extensively myself, is usually completely omitted from the story as well. One hears nothing about not not one, but two Bulgarian empires that are created in this period. And I think that that breakdown of what we think of as being Europe is, is hugely dangerous and damaging. And, you know, I'm saying this at a time where we see war in Europe and Ukraine being flattened by uh, a Russian invasion. And I think that our conceptualization of, of Europe and thinking about the darkness and the light completely omits uh, any sort of understanding or recognition of, The eastern side of Europe, particularly the southeastern quadrant, you know, so the Croatian coast, Greece, Bulgaria, the Balkans, and into Russia, where things look very, very different to how they look in Western Europe. So I think we struggle with a couple of things. First, I think we're trying to sort of reboot the idea of Europe and say it was not all doom and gloom. And by the way, there's lots going on compared to what's happening in the rest of the world, which I don't completely agree with. But, you know, I understand why scholars are trying to say it. But second, I think our formulations of Europe could do with a bit of a reality check. But part of the problem, I mean, of course, with all these things is that almost all medievalists in Europe work in Latin. Very few do Old Church Slavonic very few do Greek and very few do Arabic or Syriac or Armenian or, or other languages a bit further eastwards. So it means that if you're only dealing with Latin all the time and dealing with Western Europe, then of course, your idea of medieval history is going to be uh, not not limited or, or worse. It's just going to be different to if you're looking at exchange across larger distances. So, you know, I think I think everybody has to work these things out for themselves. I, I definitely don't think there's a one-size-fits-all answer. I mean, for, for myself, I'm particularly interested in exchange and borrowings and how the world links up to each other. But there's a lot of theory about this at the moment, a lot of people talking about it without a great deal of substance underpinning it.
0: And the ideas of trade and travel and the exchange of ideas are are central to your wonderful book, The Silk Roads, which talked about the, the paths, the trade routes that linked East and West throughout this period. How far did they extend? How far might we expect things, goods, to have travelled during that period? Do we see things, items and ideas from the west reaching the far east and from the east reaching the far west? Have you ever wondered if the Hanging Gardens of Babylon were actually real? Join me, Tristan Hughes, twice a week, every week on the Ancients from History hit, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Oh, most exchange is local. Most exchange is, you know what you buy from your local farmer or local agricultural produce, you know, not much goes long distance. The stuff that goes long distance is high value and usually low bulk. So things that are bulky are expensive to move and there's no real profit margin. So things that, that, again, are, are shiny and gold and precious are the ones that get photos of them in books because they're the ones that go over long distances, right? And they're not very many, in quantum and in fact they are all about elite exchange and so one has to distinguish i think between exchange on a day-to-day basis and you know what does it mean to have objects that have come from china in a at a court in in western europe or what does it mean to have find objects going the other direction and so one of the problems i think is that we shouldn't be thinking about east to west or west to east that bit in the middle is a hugely important powerhouse in itself, of consumption and production. So cities like Samarkand, which are very famous, and Bukhara and Kiva and so on are not just sort of locations that ping goods onto to the next buyer and eventually that buyer's got to be in Europe. It's a web of interconnected locations where gift exchange between leaders, where consumption by elites and by the wealthy is looked at differently to to perhaps more general consumption patterns. But you know, then and I think one then has to separate the the things that again, we, we find in in shiny museums, you know, golden things and garrets and diamonds and so on. You know, some of the things that writers talk most about are being most valuable are foodstuffs. You know, one of the ways in which you can show your wealth is by hosting dinner parties and we know that today and, and having not just exotic foods but stuff that tastes really good is an important part of, of hosting and it's an important part of showing off one's wealth and that's not located to a single area or region that's a kind of seems to be a common human thing so i think these exchange networks are global insofar as you know you can find wood from southeast asia from vietnam being bought in rome in the roman empire uh, you can find spices from all over South Asia being bought in, and being sold in Ethiopia in the Red Sea. You know, you can find silks from from China in um, Norway and Scandinavia. So, but the, the question is: Are these smaller amounts of goods? Are they exceptional? And what do they even show? I mean, what does it really prove? For me, what it proves is that there is an awareness and a growing awareness of interconnectivity in the world and of. An idea of people's places, locations, trade connections, where it's worth people's while making an effort to get stuck in. And those exchanges seem to me completely self-evident that they are exciting and interesting. And they seem to me to, to be what drives a lot of the sort of things that that we can easily over romanticized so travelers and explorers and pilgrims and whatever but you know all of us are curious people listen to this podcast you know every time we watch tv we're we're trying to do every time we read a book we're trying to learn something new and i think that 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 speaks to our species at its best which is that we we can be curious but you know I can say that as an academic, lots of people aren't curious. Lots of people don't want to learn new things. Lots of people are happy with what they have. what they have, and, and that's not just okay. It's not, not my position to say it's okay or otherwise. It's just that's what it is. But some people want to go and travel, want to bring back exotica, want to show them off. And, of course, that does shape a narrative because it brings new ideas, new kinds of materials, new kinds of goods, and it, it can produce change. And so, for example, the silver that comes from Central Asia – along the river routes of Ukraine and Russia in exchange for slaves, that silver, that bullion, probably plays an important part of kickstarting the early medieval European economy because so much silver ends up in the Scandinavian circulatory networks that eventually it gets plugged into acquisitions from outside Scandinavia and then the availability of silver, of which there's not an enormous amount in Europe. There's a bit, very little gold in Europe, a little bit of silver. But it looks to me that that injection of vast amounts of silver, all from Central Asia, from Samanid mines in what's now sort of Uzbekistan, is absolutely fundamental in reshaping patterns of exchange and and creating reasons for people in Europe to move more widely within Europe. So I think that these things, they can produce significant overspill effects, but they don't always.
0: And you mentioned the slave trade in that. How important was the slave trade in these kinds of economies?
1: Huge. I mean, there's no two words about it. I mean, huge. And the reason we can know that is because we've got silver finds from hoards that are deposited all along the Russian river systems and Ukrainian river systems, the Dnieper and the Dniester in particular, but also along the Vistula up into what's now the Baltic states. And then we can see the amount of silver going in through Gotland and above all, which one of the big islands off the coast of eastern Sweden. And th- that silver is attesting to large amounts of trade and traffic. And there's not an enormous amount that Europe has to offer in terms of its productivity. I mean, we, like I said, there's a little bit of gold in Europe but not much. All the things that you'd want to have if you were playing fantasy global domination—you'd probably want spices, you'd want silks, you'd want clever people and universities. You'd want to have in today's world oil and digital, but in the, in the medieval world, there's not a great deal of difference of what comes out of the ground in Italy or in France or in Germany. I mean, it's just that's just how it is. Maybe there, maybe that's one of the reasons why in Europe we fight each other so often. I mean, that's a separate story for a set, for another occasion. But you know, the, what the Scandinavians do and the Vikings who trade down that the river systems of Russia and Ukraine they do quite well in selling furs and trapping furs which are in great demand in the Arabic-speaking world but the key commodity that is the backbone of all of that silver which is measured in not the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions but at least in the tens of millions if not the hundreds of millions of silver pieces are slaves and primarily women and children not not only but primarily women and children and and the scale of that Trafficking is is vast. So, I mean, there's a project we're doing in Oxford, uh, at my university, which calls Slaves for Durham's, and we're trying to sort of get some texture around exactly the numbers involved. But you know, it's not no surprise that some of the great European cities like Dublin or Utrecht or Verdun, and above all Venice start as exit ports for slaves to be sold to the east because if you want to tap into that world of lapis and silks and fine materials etc you've got to have something you've got to to give back in return and by and large we in Europe didn't have a great deal to offer but there was an almost infinite demand for for slaves.
0: It'd be wonderful to get you back to talk about that when you have got a little bit more information on that project sounds like a wonderful project. Does the medieval world view as it was by the end of the period, quite Eurocentric, quite Western leaning. Does that affect the way that we see the globe today? Are we still dealing with kind of problems and prejudices that were baked in a millennium or more ago?
1: Absolutely. You won't find anybody who can get to come on your podcast who can tell you the difference between Russian and Ukrainian. You know, we're we're in the middle of a war. Because we've underinvested, not just in our education system, but we've underinvested in thinking about the rest of the world. I mean, again, ask the next person you get on the podcast to name you an Arabic film star or, you know, an Indian pop star or the highest grossing film or album made in China in the last 20, 30 years. No, I mean, it's absolutely self-evident, again, that we we don't think that other parts of the world have anything to offer. Whereas, you know, I can take you onto the streets of Shanghai, well, post-lockdown maybe, and and I can show you, Matt, a picture of... of Tom Cruise and David Beckham, and everyone will know who they are. So we expect everyone to learn about us, and we've spent zero time thinking about other people. And and that's a product of lots of different things. That's a product of having had an empire, and that's what you, I suppose one of the prices you pay, which is you expect everyone to want to learn about us because there's no point learning about anybody else. I suppose some of that is a product of how we think and think about and teach history, that we are self-isolating. Some of it is about languages and the inability or unwillingness to learn about other parts of the world. Some of it is about, you know, just the sheer indolence of of, of accepting the story that other people write. And, you know, until Silk Roads came out, I mean, one of the reasons it, it, I think, did so well around the world is that, you know, it's pretty obvious that we should be not just thinking about... Europe. You know, I mean, it seems to me crazy that everybody knows about Henry VIII and how many wives he had, but can't tell you what else is going on in the re- in the rest of the world at the same time that perhaps is more important. But I think history became or has become a sort of series of of stories and myths and, you know, feel good tales rather than, it doesn't have to be instructive. I'm not asking history to teach you things that you'll learn about and need for today, but it's not surprising that we completely fail to understand other parts of the world. I mean, you will not go into classroom today in the UK and hear a word about the pre-Columbian indigenous peoples of the Americas. You will not hear a single word about sub-Saharan Africa other than perhaps a little window into Benin in the 9th century that was sort of inserted during the last history reforms for reasons that were completely unclear. But, you know, just the number of scholars working from the Global South in our institutions here in the UK, or the amount of support we give Global South institutions from the UK and Europe, you know, it's pathetic, absolutely hopeless. So, I mean, of course, our our faculties are filled with scholars who are brilliant, and they are brilliant, writing about the First and Second World Wars or the Tudors or whatever, but it it wouldn't hurt for us to be thinking about the world in a more joined-up and perhaps more interesting and exciting way.
0: I was going to ask how we do that but I guess that the answer there is education and getting better education on these areas.
1: Yeah, I, I mean it involves curriculum it involves it involves politicians getting out of the way and allowing historians to work out you know what it is that we think we should teach, and you know and to, if I'm being fair, it's it's not just about history. It's not even just about geography or things that look like they're similar. This is the same about the sciences too. It's the same about mathematics. I've got children who have got grown through the school system and they've learned exactly the same stuff that I did. i'm 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 the other side of fifty now, and they they've done all the same fractions, the same long multiplications. And you know their world has changed. I mean, all my children said to me when they were having to do long multiplication, they would all say, Dad, won't I need to have my won't I just have my mobile phone with me and I can multiply whatever? And I find myself telling them, no, 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 it's really important that you can multiply 22,615 times 6,005 And thinking, well, you know, actually do they need to be able to do that in the same way? But you know, skills do need to change. And I think that we are preparing children today for a world that looks like it's 1900 rather than the 21st century. And that's partly because politicians get in the way. It's partly that you know sometimes academics and historians can't agree with themselves. But you know the real biggest challenge is availability of materials. So when Silk Road did well, I said to my publishers, um, you know, I'd love to do a kids' version or a younger readers' version to encourage the next generation. There's no point just appealing to people who are who've retired or you know reading on their on their holiday from work and they rang me back a week later and asked if I meant it and then commissioned me to do it and what's been great because that was a huge success uh, lots of other books have now been produced in children's version you know from David Sugar, through to Tim Marshall and so on you know friends of mine and it's great to see that but we maybe didn't have to wait until 2018 when Silk Road's Illustrated the the kids version came out to think that maybe frontline historians or best-selling historians you know there are plenty you know, maybe we should have been thinking about this a bit earlier. How do we make history accessible? How do we stop making it kind of elite so that the only people who can afford to read this stuff are people on their holidays who can spend 20 quid on a hardback? Rather than how do we get our ideas into the classroom? How do we do that at a price point that's okay? You know, 10 quid for a for a kid's book. And how do we get those, you know, can we also help get those books into the classroom? And I've been a bit involved with that with my own book and others in helping teachers devise modules for their courses for primary schools, for year sevens upwards, but some cases year fives upwards to get young people interested in falling in love with history and to explore how we are all connected. So there, there are lots of different answers. It's quite interesting. I get asked by different lots of different parts of government to give advice about one thing or another, but the one group that never really comes to ask me anything is the Department of Education. So, you know, that that tells its own, own story, I guess, Insofar as, you know, wouldn't it be straightforward if you were at the DFE to think how do we increase interest in history, how do we increase interest in any of the subjects we teach in schools? And why don't we get people in a room together to get them to think about how they can do that in a more effective way? And I think there's a lot there's a lot of low-hanging fruit. But you know, never, never, never underestimate the ability of a politician to miss an open goal. Well,
0: I think that's a good challenge for us to end on that perhaps some politicians ought to talk to some historians about how we can do these things better. Thank you very much for your time today, Peter. It's been a wonderful discussion. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. You can join Dr. Kat Jarman on Tuesday for another brand new episode. Don't forget to also subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from and tell all your friends and family that you've gone medieval. If you get a moment, please drop us a review or rate us wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Spotify. It really does help new listeners to find us. If you're enjoying this podcast and looking for a little bit more medieval goodness in your life, then subscribe to our Medieval Monday newsletter. Just follow the links in the show notes below. Anyway, I'd better let you go. I've been Matt Lewis and we've just gone medieval with History hits.